be starting in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now, if you're used to Keith, this is like a month and a half worth of verses. All right, there's like seven of them. We do one, maybe two verses this Sunday. So there is a lot of information. I realize it is a brunch Sunday, so I will be reasonably good on how much time that I take up for you. So let's get to Ephesians 4, 7, uh, yep, 17 through 24. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Here it says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in the understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that is the word of the Lord, infallible, inerrant, and always our guide. Amen. All right, so today we're going to learn a little bit more about Christianity and what we see in the world itself. The title of this is Christians or Not, How Could We Tell? And perhaps one of the biggest things that I've realized is when I go outside of these wonderful halls and I go into that world, so many people will put the moniker of Christian on who they are, but you would have no idea outside of this building that they were a believer of Christ in any way. And what we have here is Paul telling us some don'ts and some do's, and we're going to go over them. But I'm used to being a youth pastor. I'm used to moving a lot, which this thing is huge. <laughs> so I, I, I will be moving a lot going through here, but I also ask questions. So kids, you're allowed to answer. Adults, feel free. But what are ways that you know Christians should not act? This is a very open-ended question. Go ahead, sir. All right, they shouldn't act sinful, okay? I did not plant these answers. All right, doubtful. Doubtful in what? Doubtful in what? All right, doubtful in what God has said, his promises, his purposes. All right, what else have we got? Other things that we know we shouldn't do. There's a really, really, well, a 10-bullet list. <laughs> yeah. Don't murder. There you go. He got one of them. There are a whole bunch of them, right? Uh, we have to not have any idols other than God. There's one God. There's only one God there. Yes, sir. Treat your neighbors as yourself. We'll get, actually get to that one in a little bit. Yes. It's okay. Just go for it. All right. That was nice. I probably wouldn't have gotten that one. Good job. All right, so we have a lot of ways we know not to do things, right? Well, when we hear these ways, we also hear another thing that comes out of this society a lot, and it's the fact that most people say every Christian they have ever met is the biggest hypocrite they have ever met. All right? Because we are the people that go around telling you, don't, don't, don't do this, don't do that, you do that wrong, you haven't done this right. But then they look at our life, and we are full of the sin that we preach against. We are full, and we see nothing wrong with it. We don't see our own sin. We only see the others. And we're going to start this out with some don'ts, which kind of gets there when I was talking to Keith doing this. He was like, make sure you get the do's in the end. I'm like, I got it. Don't worry. <laughs> and so we have to learn part of, the, part of the things to make us not look like these hypocrites because in the end, we know we're sinful. In the end, we know we will fail. But there's a way to make sure that our actions and our failures and our sin is more a path to God for people than a reason for people to say you could never believe in him because of the way you act. All right, so we're going to learn how to combat that. We're going to start with some don'ts. 
All right? So, in verse 17, the first don't we get is, don't live as unbelievers, Gentiles, who walk in the futility of their minds. Now, many unbelievers live uh, for a purpose. And some people live for amazing purposes when we look at it. Uh, There are doctors, uh, people trying to cure cancer. There are people that give everything of the money they have to nonprofits. Uh, People, and it's harder to see in today's world, but they go into politics to make the world a better place. Uh, There are people who teach the children, whether it be on Sunday school, a public school, a private school, or just in the house with their own children. These are good things for society. They benefit society. All right? These are all useful things. Now, we also know there are a whole lot of things that people do that are, well, non-useful for society. And it's easy to point those out and how those are wrong. But it's harder to point out what was wrong with the stuff that I said in the beginning. Because you look at it, and when you ask someone, well, what's the end goal? And they say, well, to make society a better place, to stop the suffering of a child, to uh, make sure that someone isn't hungry, isn't cold, isn't out in the weather and just beaten up emotionally and everything like that. But the problem is, in every single one of those explanations, the end goal is still filled with vanity and self-importance. Because our purpose for any of our goals is to be worshiping and glorifying God. It isn't to make this section of the city look better. Does it help them? Yes. Does it make them happier? Does it make them more comfortable? Yes. But is comfort our end goal? Is comfort our purpose? No, our purpose is to be bringing them the love of Christ. Now, does the love of Christ give them comfort? Yes, it gives them comfort in their soul, but it doesn't mean it gives them comfort in their body. Uh, We can read about many, many people that have comforted their soul, but the horrible things that have happened to them physically. And you say, well, but, but they're trying so hard. They're trying to be so good. But it's not being based on fulfilling the promises and the purpose of the Lord. To live in the futility of mind is to think without regard for God or eternity. When I say I want to help those kids that are in the children's home right there because they've been given a raw deal. They've been given a part in life and you know just that hand of cards where you're like, man, these poor kids, I need to help them so they feel better and they do that. But if I'm doing it for their pleasure, for their comfort, and for that little bit inside of me that makes me feel better so I can tell someone I did it, even if you don't think you did, there's still a part of it that is you wanting the praise. Well, that's missing the point. And it's to live in selfish gratification of fleeting uh, pleasure. It's without regard to consequence because we think we're doing something good. There isn't a consequence, but there's still sin in the good. And it kind of stinks that way because it's hard not to see it. And a lot of this has to go with one fact that in our heart— And in our soul, there is an empty spot, all right? When we we wake up every morning, there is something that needs to be filled in us. There is this gaping wound in us that cries out for love. There is a gaping wound that cries out for our Father to be there and to be in relationship with us. And we put things in there. We put thankfulness of a director of a children's home. We put the smiles of people in our church as we help out and volunteer. We put uh, any kind of gratification that can go in there because it'll fill it for a little bit. And that hole will seem full. But the problem is five minutes later, 10 minutes later, a day, maybe a year, that hole becomes empty again. Because the only thing that can fill that hole is the love of God. And it is the relationship with your father. Because if you don't have that, you're going to be putting the things in the world into a hole that needs eternal, unconditional love. And 
a lot of you know what I've been through in the last couple of months and stuff like that. I have a wife that most people would say unconditionally loves me because of the amount of crap I've had to be putting up with and stuff like that. But in the end, it's still not the same as the love of God. There is still a place where sin will falter with her and it can break. I can't trust in that to fill me. I can't make her happy all the time. She can't make me happy all the time. The only person that can do that, the only thing that can do that is God. And if you don't have that filling the hole, then you're empty. Because even when it's full with the things of the world, it's just like going, well, I was really hungry, so I ate as much candy as I could going through here. And it will get you through. You'll zoom through life. You'll be smiling. And then a little bit later, you'll be empty again, and you're still in the same place. And Paul's saying here, don't live that way. Don't live as if God does not exist. Don't live as, as the whole purpose of you doing something for the world and you're doing this because I know me. The only reason I get anything done is him. I am a lazy, somewhat uh, slow an often unmotivated person. If it wasn't for him, half the things I have to do in life, I don't think I could even get my lawn mowed. Half the, I mean, I have to pray every once in a while while I'm starting to mow it that I actually get it done. We have five acres. It takes a while. And so it's one of those things where God, every once in a while, I have to ask God to get me through mowing the lawn. Nonetheless, you know, trying to give the word to others and the message. So as I look at that, it's a little harder. But it, Paul's also saying, don't live as if Christ had not died for your sins. Don't live as if there were no judgment or no heaven or no hell. Don't live in the futility of your mind going that way because even if it's for good reasons, if it's not for the reason, in the end it's just as empty. Another don't that we get is in verse 18, which is don't live as unbelievers who walk in the darkness of their understanding. Now, we, we go straight back to like, I don't know how many days after day seven it was the, uh, that sin came in the world, but it was pretty quick. Um, they, they don't always give me exact. I, I, I'm a math person. I love logic and exactness. The Bible is very difficult for me in many ways because of that, because there's, there's a whole lot of cloudiness in certain areas, and they don't give me exact dates. But it said, when man sinned, it plunged human race into mental darkness, which we'll cover here, and then we'll get into the alienation from God. So we're talking about the darkness of their understanding, and then we have to come back to sin because the thing that causes darkness is sin because sin is the thing that took away the relationship with our Father, the light of the world, the caring heart, the warmth that we all need. Now, when we look at this, it's very easy, and I found myself doing it many times, to put, your place, put yourself in either Adam or Eve's shoes and say, well, man, if I was there, we wouldn't have had this problem. If I was here, I would have talked her out of it, or I wouldn't have offered it to him. All right? All these things were there. This overblown self, this, uh, sense of self-importance. And we try to... We always look at it, and we want to push off that sin, be like, it has nothing to do with me because I'm so much better than that. If I were there, this wouldn't have happened. Now, in my life, I've learned that I only can speak for myself. I can't speak for other people. But I know the fact is, if I have been in the garden for Adam, all right, instead of me, if it was like, instead of Adam, he was like, I like Polish names. You're an edu. There you go. All right. And he's sitting there. He said, I would have done the same thing as Adam but I would have done it on day seven when God was resting because I was like, well, I need food, and then, well, there it is. And I would not have waited at any time for this. I would have been running for it. The sin would have been screaming at me, and I wouldn't have been able to resist it. I would have gone headlong at it. And so I realize that I'm responsible for my own spiritual darkness because I know that I am no better than the first man that has walked this earth. 
the reason that I have this sin isn't because of him, it's because of me, because God knows that I would be just as broken as he is. All right, so now, that's for everyone to realize. I can't tell anyone that's what they are. That's your, that's your coming to terms with your creator. But I know that's for me. And now, not only are the unbelievers darkened in their understanding, but they love it. All right, so Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, This is the judgment that the light has come to the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. Yeah, I've been there. My goodness. In that darkness, you get to hide the shame. You get to hide the embarrassment, and it doesn't hurt anymore. And in sin, when you run from God, (laughs) you don't feel judgment. Does it happen? Yeah, it's still there, but you don't feel it. And I often look at sin like a drug. It's like an addiction. Perhaps the greatest drug in the world, because I have never met anything in this world that, ha- that at times, other than the grace of God, that has put me feeling like I was so important. In fact, the grace of God actually goes the other way and fe- lets me realize I'm so unimportant. But it takes me to that polar opposite part, that one part that every person wants. The whole reason that you wanted to eat the fruit of the tree of wisdom, uh, truth and wisdom right there, is the fact that it makes me important. That sin makes me feel powerful. That sin makes me feel elated. That sin makes me feel like I have something. Where grace makes me realize I have none of it and I have no control over it and that's okay. But the sin, it gives me everything. And the problem with sin is when you first do it, you hide it. We can all remember when we were kids, breaking something, hiding it. Uh, we can, the, the, what we as adults call, call white lies because we don't want to feel the shame of them anyway. Oh, it's okay, it's a white lie. Little thing, it doesn't matter. We're just trying to make her feel nice. You're like, man, her haircut's horrible. You should just tell her. You know, something like that. It's one of those things that's going on. And then, but the problem with these lies is you build up a tolerance, just like any medication. That tolerance means, well, if I can lie once, I can lie twice, and I can lie about something a little bit more important, and I can lie about something even more important. And every time I do this, I go further in the hole of darkness, and it's harder for me to realize that he still can see it and he still judges it, because there I feel comfortable Everything then is brought down. You can't see the problems. You can't see the embarrassment, the shame that should be there. And the more sin you get, the further you get from the light, and the harder it is to hear him. And he's always there. And the reason it is hard is because you are trying to run. He is always still there. He is always still screaming your name, trying to run after you, and you keep digging deeper because... Every time you do that, you need to dig deeper. You have to lie even more to continue a lie you have or to have something that will make you feel more important, to make you feel less hurt. Because the only thing you can realize now is because you've been so far from that light is how much the sin makes you feel better, not how much he makes you feel better. And every time we get further away, it's harder and harder to turn around and walk back because that thought of the love of God is nothing but a faint whisper in the end in your mind, no matter how loud God is shouting for you. Because you've gone so far away and you've become so used to what gets you what you need now. And what you realize then in the end, that the sinners aren't crying out, oh, if only I could see, if only the light could get to me. Now they're partying in the dark and they don't want the light to expose their sin Because not only do they have to walk all the way back, but they also have to lay their sin at the foot of God, at the foot of the person of judgment. And even though they know that their sin has been forgiven and their sin cannot hold against them because of the death 
of Jesus and his resurrection, the salvation that we got, the shame when they come at his feet because of everything they did, they can't fully let, they won't fully let Christ come into that. They won't let him say, no, you're clean. It's the tabla rasa. You have nothing here. All he sees is my sin. The reason that they can't come back is how easy is it to believe that at every given day, I have broken every one of the Ten Commandments in a way, whether it be mentally, physically, or emotionally, in some way. And I've been running for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of my life away down a dark road to the middle of nowhere of sin. How easy is it to believe that the day I turn and I drop to my knees and I say, Lord, I accept you as my Savior. Um, I have a new life in you and you've taken all my dirty rags and given me nothing but a soul that is clean as snow. It sounds like the most probably hardest thing I would ever believe. And it's why this isn't easy. It's why not every one of these chairs is full because it's a whole lot harder to believe that someone loves you that much to instead understand how evil it is out there because it's easier to live in evil because you don't have to have a faith and you don't have to have a purpose. Another thing that they ask, uh, they tell us to not do is to don't live as unbelievers who walk in the alienation from the life of God. Now, we've been talking, alienation happens by the separation of our relationship with God. That separation happened starting with sin of Adam and has come down the ages every time and has not undone itself until the resurrection of Christ. Until that one man came here, no sin, put his life on a line for us, and gave us that ability. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, they tell us, as for you, you were dead in the transgression of your sins. Because of this alienation, it's one of those reasons why we're walking in, that, uh, walking in the futility of our mind. Why? If we don't have the salvation from the resurrection, we're still living in the old life. That is the one thing that is necessary. You have to have the new life that is given to you through Christ. And it's not just a new life. It's a new relationship with God because becoming a Christian isn't just replacing my bad behavior with more righteous behavior or moral behavior. Now, it will get better. It'll never get perfect. It will happen, but that's not the purpose. The purpose of getting this new relationship again with God is receiving the new life. Now, one of the, I mean, probably the first verse, darn it, everyone learns in uh, Sunday school as a kid is John 3.16, right? So what we know is that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a crux. If we can't, If we walk in alienation and we don't do that, we can't have the relationship with God. And without the belief in Christ, without that part right there that's done in John 3.16, there's no relationship with the Father. Um, Through a lot of youth group stuff and a lot of things that I've had in life, the largest thing that I've seen, no matter how broken, no matter what the situation is, where they're coming from, whether it be good and whether it be bad, the one thing that I've seen in both friends, students, everything else is the fact that the relationship with the Father cannot be replaced and it can never be totally filled without that. And that I see that both earthly and heavenly because... As a father here on this earth, my job is to give an example of what the Heavenly Father is like to my kids. And it's also my job to apologize to them all the time when I screw that up. (laughs) And to seek their forgiveness and to show them that I might not do it right. But I'm trying to teach them in His way and show them what He will be like. And without that, I don't think anyone can be totally full without having 
someone there to show them what God is like. And I see that as a big thing going through to be able to not walk in the alienation of God because without that example from God the Father, you can't do things. So you need someone to teach you that. And luckily there are many, many people that are around that help when the person that needs to be in that position sometimes it's tragic and they've been taken away and God had his plan and it's not ours to question. But there are other times when that person has chose something as more important than perhaps the greatest role that I see as a father, as see for any man, and that is to be there for their children, to give an idea and an understanding of the word of God so they can have an example of what it will be like and what is expected. We're also not to live as unbelievers who walk in spiritual ignorance due to hard hearts. So the person that has a hard heart ignores God and his commands. He refuses to bow before the God as sovereign. And the hardest of heart results in not knowing God. And that spiritual ignorance, again, is due to sin. A lot of these last couple ones come together on the don'ts. That's the same part. But when you look at spiritual ignorance, you look at those people... You hear the questions, why do I need him? Look how well my life has turned out. Um, If enough of us are from Citrus County, and if you're going down wonderful uh, 491 Lakanto Highway, and you get to drive by the wonderful uh, uh, Black Diamond uh, development that's there, and you see the castles that are back in that place, the wonderful... uh, Uh, cars that are coming out of that place Um, and the many things that are there and some of them, I know some of them and some of them are amazing Christians amazing people that have done amazing things and they do great stuff but how many when you, if you had to actually poll all those people and talk to them about how many people are going to tell you that the reason that they have what they have now has nothing to do with what they did because it doesn't. It's just part of the plan. It's where they were in that action. All right, the, what they got, they didn't do this. God did this. Again, we have no way that we can change his plan. It's already written. He already knows how it'll end. He already knows every part that we have to play. And so when we look at this, well, they're taking it for them. They believe that they're doing these things, but it's already done has nothing to do with their wants, their needs, their, uh, their talents, or anything else like that. The Lord put their souls in that body, in that place, because there was a reason and there was something that needed to be done to fulfill the plan. You look at other people on the other side. Look what happened to me. We know the tragedies that happen with a lot of people. Nonetheless, heck, I mean, in our own, in our own uh, congregation, the, the hard things that happen to people both physically, financially, and everything. And how easy is it to say, Lord, why do I need you if this is the lot that you've given me? If I get to suffer here, what's the point? Because it's hard sometimes to look past the physical comfort to see the end goal, because the end goal is doing and doing the purpose and the promises of the Lord to bring on the truth that will happen. And it's hard going that way. And that leaves us into our final don't, which I'm pretty sure we could have done at least a month series on, which is don't live as unbelievers who walked in callous sensuality and insatiable moral impurity. So to become callous means to cease to feel pain. You got a lot of calluses right here. Apparently, it means I don't feel pain right there. But when you're talking spiritually, it means to lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. And we've talked about this already. But when we lose that capacity to feel shame and embarrassment, we give ourselves up to sin. Because if there is nothing that holds us back, shames us, embarrasses us, it's nothing but a part of life then. And we flourish in it. 
Because again, it makes us feel important. It makes us feel better, but it has nothing to do with the purpose and it has nothing to do with the fact that we need to realize that we are servants, not the people that are be served. And it's always interesting when, when, I, when I talk about uh, insatiable moral impurity to teenagers, they just get giggly and red-faced and look down the whole time. And it's hilarious because it happens to adults a lot too. Because when you talk about that, and we don't need to go into real depth with this, but when we hear those words, we sink back into the darkest depths of our soul, those things we've never told anyone, the things, the desires, the wants, and the possibilities that we have had in our heads that we have never brought to the light, even to the word of God. We have never confessed it to him because of the shame and the embarrassment that's there. And that's how you know that you have it. And it's so hard to really explain and to tell someone. That's when you find, that's when you really know sin. And you're like, all right, I got it. I see that. And the embarrassment and that um, shame are the one thing to at least keep you away from doing or acting. But we have to be able to tell God and to tell another because when you get it out to another person, you'll be surprised because it will open up their heart and their soul and, let, and they might tell you the darkness that's there. And what you then get together as being Christians that are together in fighting that sin and being together with that will be something that's much greater than you think you could ever do on your own. So, I've given you a lot of don'ts. And you're like, I remember when I was a kid, my, my parents taught me by don'ts. I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this, 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 can't do that, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. And I was like, First off, you listed my weekly habits. Second off, what else am I supposed to do? If everything is don't, I am destined to fail. Because there's no way to be correct if everything's a don't because you're going to mess up one of them. Or all of them, depending what day of the week it was for me. So, in verses 20 through 21... We talk about a changed life begins by coming to know Christ personally. And that's a, knowing Christ personally is a really, really general term. And we're going to break that down a little. Paul, Paul describes it in four ways. First one is that we must know Christ. Now, in the NASB version, it uses a better word, which is to learn Christ. Because I know lots of people. I know Eli. All right, I know that he likes Star Wars. I know that he's going in the ninth grade. Uh, I know that for some reason he likes my children. Um, I was going to say, I, I know that he used to be really good friends with some of his sisters, but now one of them, I think, likes, wants to push him in front of a bus. Um, <laughs> so I know a lot of stuff. I know that he lives in Wilmington, Delaware. I know it was 45 minutes from where I lived in Philly. I remember when he was this big. I remember when he was just as loud as my children. I have all that. All right? But that has nothing with me learning who Eli is. That's not a personal relationship. That's knowing about someone. I know a lot about people. I can name more things about you people than most people know anything about me. And because I'm, weirdly enough, quieter here than most places. And so to becoming a, becoming a Christian is more than a matter of knowing, uh, knowing about God. It's learning God, and it's learning him in a personal relationship. And this is more than who he is and what he has done, because I've told you things of Eli, well, who he is, what he has done, and stuff like that. For Jesus, it's more than some really, really hard to understand and sometimes mind-boggling things. Virgin birth, uh, the fact that he is the Trinity, he is one part of a three-part uh, triune Godhead, and which is mind-blowing to try to rationalize a human brain around. All right. Uh, the fact that he did not sin, the fact that he was willing to give himself up on a cross for, uh, for a group of people, he knew that most of them hated him at most times. And the fact that God was willing to let his son do this just so he could have a relationship with a group of miscreants he put on this world. 
because we can't follow directions. We don't slow down. We don't, you know, always utilize what we have. I mean, this is, this is the list that my wife gives me that why I mess things up and I can't put to together Ikea furniture. Nonetheless, be able to do life. All right? So as we look at this, and then salvation without him, it's impossible. He did all these things. It's possible to know all these facts about Jesus, but to not know him personally. Now, I quote a lot of stuff going through here. I quote a lot from the Gospel of John. Um, there is a real personal relationship. I mean, a, a real relationship. The disciple that he loved the most, right? That's the kind of relationship we need to understand him. And in John seventeen three, Jesus prayed, this is the eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that Christian life, begins when you receive eternal life from God through the faith in Christ, but this is only initial counter. It's only the beginning. You must develop a personal relationship so we understand that this is a transition because when I say, yes, I believe, and I have that faith, which is like jumping off of the highest mountain with nothing tethered against you, and only a person up there going, yeah, it might work. You know, just sitting there and you believing it and you going for it. And it starts there at the no, because that's where you started at. I knew God. There's no way I could understand him the same way that I do now. But I've been learning about him. And I'm transitioning from that no to learn, because at your point of salvation, at that point of acceptance of Savior, you're at a no. And the whole point of this wonderful, wonderful uh, life that we're living is to know him better every day and to learn him better every day. And we get that. I mean, we're we're given the Bible and self-professing Christians, 12% of them have ever read it, like the full thing. Uh, So... How are you working on knowing that? If you got married and only knew 12% of your spouse's life, I doubt that would be a successful thing, nor would that most people say you were useful in a relationship. Um, You have a wonderful church here. You have Bible studies that are here. You have a body of Christ that will help you together and help you learn and help you go through things to better understand him and personally know him. And the bigger thing, prayer, uh, it's one of those things that we're all pretty... Lacking of the ability to do amazingly. We all mess it up. We all don't pray anywhere near as much as we should. We have an open conduit with the creator of the universe, and I would rather watch Sports Center. Uh, I would rather watch a movie. I would rather go exercise with my friends instead of talking to the creator of the universe, the most wonderful thing that has ever been in the realm of existence. And I pick these things instead of talking to him. So to really know him personally, we have to work through that. All right. And to know him personally, we must be able to hear Christ. So we must be able to hear the gospel. And a lot of people, we see a lot of times in the Bible where we, where we hear the prophets uh, Isaiah and Isaiah say that people had to have their deaf ears opened and their blind eyes to see, uh, open to see, right? And what does that allow? That allows us to receive the call to him and to obey this call of faith and repentance. And here's one of those things. If we said, well, of course, if I could hear Jesus, if I can hear his call, his message, his want, his pull to me, I would go running towards it. And then we look out and how many people, they, can, they could have went to church on Saturday night, but uh, are going out fishing this morning, went to breakfast instead of coming to the house of God. How many people on a Wednesday night, instead of being at a Bible study, are watching a sitcom. So, well, why, 
how could you, if you can hear things, run away from that? The fact that the most caring, loving, greatest thing that, is, uh, that has ever been in existence is calling you home to be part of his wonderful story, the greatest love story ever written from beginning to end. Why isn't every church full? Why isn't everything there? And in John 8, uh, 43, Jesus asked the Jews that were challenging him, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And it's not, there weren't a whole lot of deaf people back then. It wasn't like this epidemic that was going on and you have, you know, this, all these deaf people going through and they can't hear. No, it's a fact that Satan had deafened to the call of salvation. The sin that they were in deafened them because the sin was screaming to them, you don't want to hear this. This won't help you. This won't make you feel good. This won't make you feel important. And I think enough of us that are in here that have realized how grace allows us to understand that we are the servant, we are the low people on that totem pole, and that is amazing. And the fact is that we were put here to serve. Well, that doesn't seem as important or comfortable as being the king. And sin is warm, and it's easy, it's pleasurable, and it gets worse as it goes on, but you keep fighting for that same pleasure you had in the beginning. Because listening to God makes you do something else. And this is where we get to the point where we say, well, if, why doesn't God open up all the ears? And this is where a lot of the denominations split. Where we have some denominations that say, you can save every single person, you just have to get out there and try harder. And then you have those denominations that say the Lord has chose his plan. And that plan has a way for every person to fulfill that plan. And sometimes not everyone has the leading role. Not everyone has the happy ending. And most people will say, then how can this loving God, this God that created everyone in his image, how can he then knowingly be sending someone to hell? Because hell's terrifying, right? It's this place that is, now everyone sees fire. Everyone sees, oh, all these horrible things that we make up. That's because we have no idea how to really explain what hell actually is. Because hell is the total end permanent isolation from the relationship of God. It is the coldest. I don't see heat. I don't see fire. I see the coldest, saddest, most horrible place in the world. But again, if you're a person on this world that has done nothing but run from God, has nothing but gone away from him and everything like that, what would be worse for you? Think about that. Would it be worse to be with the person that you've been running away that you've hated this whole time? God. Or is it worse to go to hell, the alienation of? And it's kind of hard to understand that one because you say, but then why am I here? Because I know the sin that's there and has nothing to do with you. Nothing at all. It had nothing to do with your choice. It is the fact that you were given a wonderful gift from God. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we were pre, there is a predestined, there is a plan. And some people have different parts, and we were just lucky enough to have the right part. And that's just how we have to look at that. Also, you must be taught in Christ. Now, to be taught in Him means not to be taught outside of Him. You cannot try to stay outside of Christ to learn about Him. You have to be in Him, and in Him, the only way you can be in Him is to be in salvation with Him in, uh, in His resurrection. You have to have a continued learning relationship until full revelation. Because 
We will learn everything, and some people in here will be called scholars, and they will know the Bible better than other people. They will know things that you had no idea where they even got this information, but it sounds so amazing and so true, and they can back it up. And then you look at it, and you go, wait a minute. I know nothing. And you're just trying to figure all this out. And the thing you will realize is the day that you end up in the banquet, and you get to see the truth for the first time, and your mind is open, and everything that you didn't know comes into you, you will realize that the scholar next to you knew just as, just as little as you did, because that person had no idea anywhere near the depth. This is an infinite knowledge of infinite truth. You are a finite person with a very little ability to understand it. So it's just a way to realize that coming through that we have to have a continued learning relationship until that full revelation. And when we get there, it will be amazing. You must also know that the truth is in Jesus. The reason that Christ is the focus of instruction is that he is in the embodiment of this truth. Uh, in John fourteen six, uh, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the truth of salvation. He is the truth of who we are, sin and righteousness, God's purpose, how to love God, love one another, the coming judgment, heaven and hell. He is all of that truth. All right? The truth rests, this whole Christian faith rests on the historical Jesus, not just the fact that he is your Savior. Because if he isn't historical, this stuff is useless. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 17, it said, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Well, that's the whole part. If he didn't become human and uh, God, if he wasn't 100% of both, if he wasn't there to die for our sins, he had to die, then there's no use. Our whole faith is useless unless he is real. So when you have all these wonderful cults, uh, belief systems, and everything else that have the Christ principles and the world religions that look to his love, but they deny his humanity and they deny his holiness, then there's nothing else. There is no Christianity without him being real and him being here. All right, we're getting near the end. He told us on verse 22, you must put off the old man. So the old man is the former self. In Romans 6, 6, it said our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So he dies on the cross. We die with him, right? We're told this. He's raised. We're raised with him because of our faith. Beautiful. So just sit back and relax now, right? We're saved by faith. We go off of our five points of Calvinism. Once saved, always saved. They can't take it away. But so we don't have to do anything. We've got this new self. So there's no sin pressure, right? There's no temptation. No, it's all around us. It comes at us more. Because you know what? When you look at this, Everyone, no one likes to talk about Satan in the world, but he is everywhere and evil is here. And if you look at it and you go through, he doesn't have to try for the person that isn't doing anything for a faith, who's sitting on on a couch, not doing anything, doesn't believe, doesn't do all these things. None of that works. So since you don't have, he doesn't have to work on him. He has to work on you because he, you are the souls that he wants because when your soul turns, other peoples do not get saved. When your soul turns, he takes one away from. So realize that we can't just sit back and relax. Every day we must practice by taking off the old rags of self, the old rags of sin, and putting on the new life in Christ. In the old life, sin deceives us in the thinking we have freedom and fulfillment but it defiles, it enslaves us, and ultimately it destroys us. And we died to sin by the virtue of the death on the cross, but we must be able to get rid of it every day because it will creep back and it will come. And we are the people that are supposed to be that example, and our example is the fact that we are broken and we have to try every day, and we will probably fail in many things. You must be renewed in the spirit of your mind also, So this one's a little bit easier because that's not an action step for us. 
Someone else is doing the renewing. Ah, finally something I can do out of all this. All right, so it's an ongoing process that God performs in us. We just have to cooperate with him. So I'm usually good if someone's doing something for me to help them because I don't want to be looking like the guy who doesn't, which then in the end means I'm not doing it because I'm supposed to. I'm just doing it because I don't want people to look at me weird. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, 12 through 13, it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So God does the renewing as we obey him by saturating our mind with his tremendous word. And so God performs the work of renewal. Beautiful. In us, but we're responsible to use the means of renewal, namely his word, which renews our hearts and thoughts as we submit to it. So that means Christianity just isn't a belief in being saved by God. It also means it's an action of living life as a Christian, which then becomes an outward projection to the world. It just isn't sitting back. It's getting these things done. And the last thing that we have is you must put on the new man. And by putting on the new man, well, that's, that's done for us. Again, it says that we're in Romans 6, 6. It's one of those things where we have to realize when we take off the old man, we have to put on the new man. But what does that new man look like? In Ephesians 2.10, it tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we have to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us. No one is saying that our salvation depends on good works. But when we are saved, we are given a new life. And that new life is changed. And the only way we can show that change is through the actions that we have. And in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's great. We all can believe. We all know there's something better and bigger and more powerful and more loving and more enraged at times than anything we can believe up there. But if we're not living the Christian life, is your faith false words or is it real? And James talks about that a lot. The fact that There must be a change in us. There must be a new self. And with that, we've been given some instructions.